The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Book One, The Coming of the Martians. Chapter Five, The Heat Ray. Hello and welcome to another edition of Public Domain Playhouse. I'm your narrator and guide, Bart Benny, and tonight's episode, we are really getting into the guts of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, so it's an exciting chapter. The Heat Ray doesn't really leave much to the imagination, but you know what? Let's find out for sure what exactly the Heat Ray is. Perhaps it's something like a toaster oven. Maybe the Martians came to share grilled cheese recipes with the Earthlings. We're going to find that out tonight in Chapter 5, The Heat Ray. But one of the things that uh, we like to pride ourselves at here at Public Domain Playhouse is the fact that we're kind of a cross between an ebook experience and a podcast. And it basically means that we create teleplays, old school radio like teleplays, complete with sound effects and other fun stuff like music. So we hope that you enjoy that experience. But in the vein of being like a podcast, one of the things that we like to do is take a look at these pieces of literature from antiquity and find out why they are still part of the lexicon of the English language today. The War of the Worlds is something that everybody knows. It's been recreated in radio shows and TV programs and movies and all different kinds of ways, comic books and books itself, spinoffs. Wells was actually the grandfather of science fiction. So how did he actually get to that point, though? As you recall, if you were with us in the last episode, Wells was actually sold into indentured servitude by his parents, who were a couple of domestic servants. I think his father was a gardener and his mom was a lady's maid or something like that. They ended up not even having a very happy marriage. They didn't even live together. Wells was kind of shipped off to be an apprentice somewhere, and none of that stuff ended up working out for him. So how did he end up becoming one of the most famous science fiction writers of all time? Wells actually got to that point by becoming a teacher. In October 1879, Wells' mother arranged through a distant relative to join the National School at Wookiee. You heard that right, Wookiee in Somerset. He was there as a pupil teacher, and I don't know if he was teaching Chewbacca or if he was teaching other Wookiee-like creatures but he started off as a pupil teacher. He was a senior pupil who acted as a teacher to younger children. Things didn't work out. He ended up going home, and after a short apprenticeship as a chemist and an even shorter stay as a boarder at Midhurst Grammar School, Wells signed an apprenticeship paper at Hyde's, apparently a pretty prestigious English firm. In 1883, Wells persuaded his parents to release him from that apprenticeship, taking an opportunity offered by Midhurst Grammar School again to become a pupil teacher. His proficiency in Latin and science during his earlier short stay there had been remembered. Now, the years Wells spent in South Sea had been among the most miserable of his life up to that point. But he had good fortune at securing that position back at Midhurst Grammar School because it meant he could continue his self-education. The following year, Wells won a scholarship to the Normal School of Science, which was later renamed the Royal College of Science. 
which is now part of the Imperial College of London, or the Imperial College London, and he studied biology under Thomas Henry Huxley, a staunch Darwinist. As an alumnus, Wells later helped to set up the Royal College of Science Association, of which he was the first president in 1909. So Wells studied at that new school until 1887 with a weekly allowance of 21 shillings, which apparently is a guinea, thanks to his scholarship. And while that seems like it might have been a tidy sum, since that was the average wage of the entire household back in Victorian family history, he wrote about it in his autobiography, saying that he had been constantly hungry, and if you take a look at pictures of him from that period, indeed, he is a pretty thin and malnourished kid. Wells also entered the debating society in school. Those years were the beginning of his interest in a possible reformation of society, a theme that he would end up writing about later on. He studied Plato's Republic and eventually turned to contemporary ideas of socialism, Wells was among the founders of the Science School Journal, which was a school magazine that allowed him to express his views on literature and society, two things that were very important to him. As well as trying his hand at fiction, he was able to publish a precursor to his novel, The Time Machine. It was published under the name The Chronic Argonauts. I like that. I want to be a chronic argonaut. Wells finished up his studies in 1887, and during 1888, he stayed in Stoke-on-Kent, living in Basford. It was a unique environment called the Potteries. He wrote in a letter to a friend from that area that the district made an immense impression on him because it was an inspiration for some of his descriptions in War of the Worlds that we're reading today. He wrote vivid descriptions of the iron foundry furnaces burning over the city, shooting huge red lights into the sky. This could have been his inspiration for Martian destruction. So after teaching for some time, Wells was briefly on the staff of Holt Academy in Wales. He found it unnecessary to supplement his knowledge relating to educational principles and methodology, and he entered the College of Preceptors, which was a college of teachers. Wells later received his licentiate and fellowship, which is an FCP diploma from the college, and in 1890, he went on to get his Bachelor of Science degree in zoology at the University of London External Program. After that, in 1889 and 1890, he managed to find a post as a teacher at Henley House School in London, where he taught A.A. A. Milne, whose father ran the school. A.A. A. Milne, famous for being the author of Winnie the Pooh. Wells was actually one of his early teachers. Wells' first published work was a textbook of biology in two volumes published in 1893. Now, upon leaving the normal school of science, Wells was left without any source of income. His Aunt Mary, his father's sister-in-law, invited him to stay with her for a while, which solved his immediate problem of accommodations. And during his stay at his aunt's residence, he also met his future wife. He grew increasingly interested there, in her daughter, Isabel, whom he later courted. To earn money, Wells began to write short, humorous articles for journals such as the Pall Mall Gazette, later collecting these in volume form as select conversations with an uncle, and 
Certain Personal Matters, published in 1897. Wells was so prolific at that kind of journalism that many of his earlier pieces actually still remain unidentified to this day. Historians note that most of Wells's occasional pieces have not been collected, and many have not even been identified as his. Wells did not automatically receive a byline at that time because his reputation did not demand it until after 1896 or so. So many of Wells's early items have been lost. Wells's success with these shorter pieces, though, encouraged him to write book-length work, and he published his first novel, The Time Machine, in 1895. In the next chapter, we'll actually talk a little bit more about Wells's personal life after he left the world of being a teacher and started to become an icon. But today, we're getting ready to find out about the heat ray. But first, let's back up for a minute. I don't know that everybody was actually with me for chapter four. The cylinder opens. So let's go ahead and rehash a little bit of what was happening there. As you recall in The Cylinder Opens, if you were with me, the narrator, the unnamed narrator, returns to Horsell Common to discover that there's an even larger crowd there, everybody pushing to be able to see the cylinder. Everybody was excited to be there, all except for one poor guy who fell into the crater where the cylinder was, and he kept trying to push his way back out, which is always the way, isn't it? The grass is always greener on the other side of the crater. The grass is always greener on the other side of the crater. Then the cylinder opens and out comes something that no one expects because they all expected something like a man. But instead what they got was snake-like tentacles and a body about the size of a bear and, and skin that glistened like wet leather. So everyone runs away from the Martian as they're coming out, screaming in terror just because it looks horrible, which is probably a pretty adequate description considering Wells said that he was dripping saliva with a lipless mouth and had big, luminous eyes that peered right into him. Oh, and the tentacles. Don't forget the tentacles. Since all the people have then run for cover, even though they just found places to hide so they, they could still watch, the area by the crater is now a human-free zone with just some horses and carts left behind. Oh, and remember the guy who fell into the crater? Guess what? He's still there. Bum, bum, bum. So now it's time to get on with today's presentation of Chapter 5, The Heat Ray, brought to you by Public Domain Playhouse. <clears throat> Chapter 5, The Heat Ray After the glimpse I had had of the Martians emerging from the cylinder in which they had come to Earth from their planet, a kind of fascination paralyzed my actions. I remained standing knee-deep in the heather, staring at the mound that hid them. I was a battleground of fear and curiosity. I did not dare to go back towards the pit, but I felt a passionate longing to peer into it. I began walking, therefore, 
in a big curve, seeking some point of vantage, and continually looking at the sand heaps that hid these newcomers to our earth. Once a leash of thin black wisps, like the arms of an octopus, flashed across the sunset and was immediately withdrawn. And afterwards, a thin rod rose up, joint by joint, bearing at its apex a circular disk that spun with a wobbling motion. What could be going on there? Most of the spectators had gathered in one or two groups, one a little crowd towards Woking, the other a knot of people in the direction of Chotham. Evidently, they shared my mental conflict. There were few near me. One man I approached. He was, I perceived, a neighbor of mine, though I did not know his name, and accosted. But it was scarcely a time for articulate conversation. What ugly brutes, he said. Good God, what ugly brutes! He repeated this over and over again. Did you see the man in the pit, I said. But he made no answer to that. We became silent and stood watching for a time side by side, deriving, I fancy, a certain comfort in one another's company. And then I shifted my position to a little knoll that gave me the advantage of a yard or more of elevation. And when I looked for him presently, he was walking towards Woking. The sunset faded to twilight before anything further happened. The crowd far away on the left, towards Woking, seemed to grow. And I heard now a faint murmur from it. The little knot of people towards Chotham dispersed. There was scarcely an intimation of movement from the pit. It was this, as much as anything, that gave people courage. And I suppose the new arrivals from Woking also helped to restore confidence. At any rate, as the dusk came on, a slow intermittent movement upon the sand pits began. A movement that seemed to gather force as the stillness of the evening about the cylinder remained unbroken. Vertical black figures in twos and threes would advance, stop, watch, and advance again, spreading out as they did so in a thin, irregular crescent that promised to enclose the pit in its attenuated horns. I, too, on my side, began to move towards the pit. Then I saw some cabmen and others had walked boldly into the sand pits and heard the clatter of hooves and the gride of wheels. I saw a lad trundling off the barrow of apples and then within thirty yards of the pit, advancing from the direction of Horsel, I noted a little black knot of men, the foremost of whom was waving a white flag. This was the deputation. There had been a hasty consultation, and since the Martians were, evidently in spite of their repulsive forms, intelligent creatures, it had been resolved to show them, by approaching them with signals, that we too were intelligent. Flutter, flutter, went the flag. First to the right then to the left. It was too far for me to recognize anyone there, but afterwards I learned that Ogilvy, Stent, and Henderson were with others in this attempt at communication. This little group had in its advance dragged inward, so to speak, the circumference of the now almost complete circle of people, and a number of dim black figures followed it 
at discreet distances. Suddenly there was a flash of light, and a quantity of luminous greenish smoke came out of the pit in three distinct puffs, which drove up, one after the other, straight into the still air. The smoke, or flame perhaps would be a better word for it, was so bright that the deep blue sky overhead and the hazy stretches of brown common towards Chertsey, set with black pine trees, seemed to darken abruptly as these puffs arose, and to remain the darker after their dispersal. At the same time, a faint hissing sound became audible. Beyond the pit stood the little wedge of people with the white flag at its apex, arrested by these phenomena, a little knot of small vertical black shapes upon the black ground. As the green smoke arose, their faces flashed out pallid green and faded again as it vanished. Then slowly the hissing passed into a humming, into a long, loud, droning noise. Slowly, a humped shape rose out of the pit, and the ghost of a beam of light seemed to flicker out from it. Forthwith, flashes of actual flame, a bright glare leaping from one to another sprang from the scattered group of men. It was as if some invisible jet impinged upon them and flashed into white flame. It was as if each man were suddenly and momentarily turned to fire. Then, by the light of their own destruction, I saw them staggering and falling, and their supporters turning to run. I stood staring, not as yet realizing that this was death leaping from man to man in that little distant crowd. All I felt was that it was something very strange, an almost noiseless and blinding flash of light, and a man fell headlong and lay still. And as the unseen shaft of heat passed over them, pine trees burst into fire. And every dry furze bush became with one dull thud a mass of flames. And far away towards Knapp Hill, I saw the flashes of trees and hedges and wooden buildings suddenly set alight. It was sweeping round swiftly and steadily, this flaming death, this invisible, inevitable sort of heat. I perceived it coming towards me by the flashing bushes it touched, and was too astounded and stupefied to stir. I heard the crackle of fire in the sand pits, and the sudden squeal of a horse that was as suddenly still. And then it was as if an invisible yet intensely heated finger were drawn through the heather between me and the Martians, and all along the curving line beyond the sand pits, the dark ground smoked and crackled. Something fell with a crash far away to the left, where the road from Woking Station opens out on the common. Forthwith, the hissing and humming ceased, and the black, dome-like object sinks slowly out of sight, into the pit. All this had happened with such swiftness that I stood motionless, dumbfounded and dazzled by the flashes of light. 
Had that death swept through a full circle, it must inevitably have slain me in my surprise. But it passed and spared me, and left the night about me suddenly dark and unfamiliar. The undulating common seemed now dark almost to blackness, except where its roadways lay gray and pale under the deep blue sky of the early night. It was dark and suddenly void of men. Overhead, the stars were mustering, and in the west, the sky was still a pale, bright, almost greenish-blue. The tops of the pine trees and the roofs of Horsel came out sharp and black against the western afterglow. The Martians and their appliances were altogether invisible, save for that thin mast upon which their restless mirror wobbled. Patches of bush and isolated trees here and there smoked and glowed still, and the houses toward Woking Station were sending up spires of flame into the stillness of the evening air. Nothing was changed save for that and a terrible astonishment. The little group of black specks with the flag of white had been swept out of existence, and the stillness of the evening, so it seemed to me, had scarcely been broken. It came to me that I was upon this dark common, helpless, unprotected, and alone. Suddenly, like a thing falling upon me from without, came fear. With an effort, I turned and began a stumbling run through the heather. The fear, I felt, was no rational fear, but a panic terror, not only of the Martians, but of the dusk and stillness all about me. Such an extraordinary effect in unmanning me it had that I ran weeping silently as a child might do. Once I had turned, I did not dare to look back. I remember I felt an extraordinary persuasion that I was being played with. That presently, when I was upon the very verge of safety, this mysterious death, as swift as the passage of light, would leap after me from the pit about the cylinder and strike me down. And there you have it. That's the end of Chapter 5, The Heat Ray. And I think it's safe to say that the Martians did not want to share their grilled cheese sandwich recipes. Which is a shame, because I understand that all planetary objects are indeed made out of cheese. Not quite. I think Wells would probably disagree with that, since he was a lettered man of science from everything from botany to zoology. Thank you for joining me for this chapter of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. This is Bart Benny for Public Domain Playhouse. As always, we'll see you in the next chapter.